This is a podcast by The Straits Times. two of my previous conversation on whether unelected nominated members of parliament or NMPs are still necessary in parliament. In the studio with me are two former NMPs, Anthea Ong, who is also the editor of the book, and Nicholas Fang, managing director of Black Dot Research. Moving on to your personal experiences of this as NMPs. So Nicholas, in parliament you raised defence and security as well as sports-related issues as you mentioned. So, did the NMPs discuss and divvy up the topics among yourselves before each session? We definitely did get together and, and, and share some ideas and bounce ideas off one, one another. But um, we all had sort of our functional groups that we were answerable to in that sense. Uh, some groups were much more organised than others. For example, the arts community, very organised. They had town halls, they had votes internally about who they thought should be the best NMP candidate and stuff like that. Sports, a little bit less organized. You know, I, I knew the Straits Times actually did an article, which is how it all sort of generated. They did an article to sort of solicit views from the sports community about who they felt should be a good sports NMP. And then very kindly, my name sort of floated up. And then ST called me for a comment. And I was like, wait, uh, let me find out a little bit more about this NMP scheme first. Um, and that's really how it sparked the idea for me. You know, it wasn't so much organically me wanting, really, really wanting to be an NMP. Um, so, you know, we have the, the our sort of constituency. I'm doing air quotes. I know you can't see it, but air quotes uh, constituency. So we, we should represent those and we should talk about that. Um, but when we discuss among, at least among my cohort, then we knew whether anybody had sort of uh, similar views who might want to speak up in support when, when we made speeches and things like that. Or if they had differing views and questions, then, you know, that helped to strengthen our argument a, a, a little bit as well. But in, in a sense, this speaks again to the broader issue and it comes back to the book about why we felt the book was useful. Uh, as NMPs, we are quite an isolated little community. Uh, many of us don't have the, the, the full machinery and support and, and obviously we're not given the same allowances that, that elected MPs have to run a research team or have a legislative assistant and things like that. So most of us just do it ourselves. So the community sticks together and, and helps each other out as much as possible. But that's one of the purposes of doing the book as well, is to provide some kind of resource. So if anybody was considering, you know, stepping forward in the future, they would have, you know, they could they could read through the book and, and gain some insights through their experiences. But then we run into a little bit of a conundrum, right? Which, which you know, we, Anthea and, and myself and the others had a bit of a discussion about was whether or not the NMP should organize. And the NMP scheme, Anthea mentioned, non-partisan, independent, and ostensibly uh, objective independent voice representing your functional group. If the NMPs banded together and worked together and prepared and started to take, as, as Grace saw what you alluded to, you know, you know, unified stance and positions on certain things, then how do we retain that independence, non-partisan? Because you kind of start to become, maybe not a party, but some kind of organized thing. But at the same time, all of us wanted to help one another and say, if the, in the future if people want to come forward, they shouldn't feel so lost. You know, they can come in and be a bit more prepared and hit the ground running. So I think the book was a great sort of middle ground, right? We come with a resource. I haven't read the book yet, but I think the views of, of all the different NMPs who have contributed 
would be very useful for anyone sort of considering it, like myself, you know, if you get a call from Straits Times, hey, why don't you be an NMP, right? And I was like, okay, at least I know what goes on, you know, not beyond the name, beyond the, the, the mandate, at least I know kind of what goes on, the experiences and what I'm getting into as well. So uh, I'm really looking forward to the book, actually. Now, speaking of functional groups, right, did you ever feel like you had to kind of bowl in your own lane and not talk about topics outside of the areas, you know, topics you're not so familiar with? No. I mean, you, you didn't, definitely, Nicholas. Um, actually, none of us did. Obviously, you you always have, I mean, and, and the sector and the group that I was supposedly nominated for to represent, it's such a huge, diverse group, right? It's the people in the civic sector. You are basically saying everyone, you know, when you talk about people in the civic sector. But but no, not not really. I don't think we felt like we shouldn't because once you are actually in the house, then you are a parliamentarian uh, representing the the voices of Singapore Singaporeans, right? So I don't think many of us felt like we should be shackled um, to just staying within the boundaries of the functional group. But some of them, like the business and MP and all, of course that that should be there. Uh, foremost consideration, you know, when it comes to budget and COSs and and stuff like that. But, you know, I think generally is really open. Just to add on to the point about whether we divvy up, you know, I think in my cohort anyway, my experience that we did, I agree with Nicholas. And I think that's, that's where we have to kind of find that balance, right? It's not about organizing ourselves and having just one voice um, because that, that does then challenge the whole... Um, essence and spirit of the independence and the non-partisan nature of NMPs. And then and then we'll take away a lot of the merits of why we have the scheme in the first place. But I also don't think it means that we always constantly must be um, having different views with each other. So it's more a coherence, not just one voice, but there's a coherence to how we're trying to move the needle or move Singapore forward. Right. So I think uh, the likes of Madev and Shawin uh, came together to table a motion, the education of the future motion. And of course, they, they brought different expertise, but the coherent message was how do we look at uh, education differently right, going forward? And for my time, we, we came together. So, you know, Walter Tessera did a adjournment motion in the light of the whole thing with Yale NUS and Alfian Syed talking about liberal education, liberal arts education. So then, you know, we pair up. I also did a, uh, a speech on youth activism uh, in the same adjournment motion when I tabled an adjournment motion for dig- closing the digital divide in, you know, in the midst of COVID, right? San San, uh, my, my fellow NMP, then also came in, right? So that's, I think that's a possibility of this sort of partnership and collaboration. But, but yes, we must be mindful and we must continue to stay on the side of nonpartisanship and being independent individually. But even when we come together, we're still, you know, we're still not towing just one line. I think that's that's um, and so it's it's yeah, it's a little bit of a dance. I think it's not so straightforward as the political parties and, you mm. know. I I had 
guys in my cohort and of course uh, since then as well, you see that NMPs will speak about every issue. Every issue also got speech. So I think one of the points, I mean, one of the things that I'm also quite mindful of is not to, don't speak about things that you don't really know that much about, that you can offer only a superficial cursory comment like, you know, oh, this is bad, right? Or you have to go a little bit more in depth. Um, you know, otherwise you are really, you now parliament sessions are getting longer and longer. So if you want to make a contribution, make sure it's a meaningful, yeah, and one that's, that's worthy to be heard. Don't just speak for the sake of speaking. Um, so I was quite mindful. Is there stuff I wasn't very certain about, you know, but I had a view on it and I really asked myself, is this view really, is it really necessary that everybody hears it or can I just have the view myself? Um, but yeah, so there's definitely no restrictions in that sense uh, placed on us. I think that's a really good point, right? Because because you, you almost feel like elected MPs would, would need to speak up because you have been selected, you know, as the elected representative. But NMPs don't necessarily have that pressure because we're, we're not out to get votes, right? And that, that's a good thing because that's, that gives us the the space and the flexibility to um, to raise issues that might be controversial, might be uncomfortable for the elected MPs, or might not even be you know on the radar of the uh, of the elected MPs. But on the other hand, it's also important that we are also self regulating, as what um, you know Nicholas said, right? You, go, you don't have the party to say, "Hey, you can you cannot speak on this, you cannot speak on that." And so, whether you end up not speaking at all or you end up speaking so much, everything is just down to you, you know, making that <laughs> that whole conversation with yourself and and doing it that accountability, you know, check uh, on yourself and with with the people whom you feel you are actually helping to bring the voice to Parliament. But on self-regulating and striking a balance, was there any scary or intimidating moments for both of you? Or maybe even moments when you doubted why you were in the house? <laughs> <laughs> intimidating? Maybe the first, the first session. So I think it helps because I've been in the corporate sector, you know, we did a lot of public speaking and, and being being a leader and all that gives you a lot of opportunities uh, for speaking up. But I think it's more sort of trying to navigate you know, what can you say? What can you not say? What can you do? So my maiden speech, which was um, debating on the employment bill, the employment amendment bill, I decided I was going to just, you know, try getting the whole parliament to do three deep breaths with me before I start my speech. I was a bit of a ball of nerves before that. I was so clear I want to do it because I want to, you know, to talk about mental wellness and mental well-being at the workplace, right? And so I was trying to demonstrate a point. Um, the good thing is actually it was very well received. I was I was kind of taken back and I was wondering why are they sort of thumping the armrest? You know, like all of the front benches dumping the armrest. I'm like looking at Walter. I'm like, oh my god, what was that supposed to mean? But you know, um, Prime Minister especially was uh, was so kind. I was smiling at me directly, uh, and so I I thought, okay, I didn't get into trouble. But um, but that I remember as a unnerving moment. Like, am I crossing the line here? The other obviously was was just sort of standing up and defending the um, Pothma Amendment motion, uh, and that was a long, long marathon. Um, sitting and I think it was the first time uh, I felt like every elected MP or the government MP who stood up was trying to hit, um, you know, to run down one of our uh, points in the motion. Uh, and so it was a combination of being, you know, it being very exhilarating because you're kind of changing your speech as you go because you're taking everyone's input. Um, but at the same time, you feel this like, wow, all right, they're all coming you know, uh, at us, you know, at me. 
Um, so that that I think was quite a um, intense um, session. Yeah, in terms of of nerve wracking or stressful moments, uh, I, I not so much that. But you know, I do remember being scolded by by uh, then speaker uh, Michael Palmer when I was giving a my first speech. I think it was around the budget period, and I was he in his in his view taking a little bit of literary license with uh, my descriptions. You know, he said uh, I think he said something along that this is not a literature class. You know, Nicholas, can you please stick to the time? Uh, so I was going on a little bit. Maybe basically told, hey, please speed it up, you know, less uh, flowery language. Um, so knowing how to hit the right tone in terms of, you know, wanting to 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 make a, an argument that touches people, you know, uh, is a little bit emotive um, and not crossing the line and, you know, grandstanding. I think for me, figuring out the, 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 the sort of happy medium was quite important, you know. Once in a while, I would try to inject a little bit of levity into the speech because everybody makes hard-hitting, very, very, you know, uh, uh, um, heartfelt, somber type of speeches. Uh, so, you know, I remember once I was thinking, I think I was talking about birth rates or or marriage marriages in Singapore and then I happened to put in a one-liner and this was years before I met my wife. I put in one-liner and said, oh, I, I'm still single, by the way, you know. So everybody sort of laughed and then Speaker uh, Halima, now President Halima said, uh, Nicholas, so I would like to remind you that you're not allowed to uh, promote any products or services in the house, including yourself. So, so that raised a bit That's of a That's so chuckle. cool that she actually danced with you there. Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when, when people sort of, you know, perk up at that, they tend to remember your speeches a little bit, right? So um, it's not, it's uh, you know, not being funny for the sake of being funny. It's not the right place to, to be funny. But if you can see the lighter side of things and, and people sort of wake up and say, oh, what was that? You know, and then they tend to remember the speeches as well. So, um, beyond when I whenever I write very serious, hard hitting type of speech, I always try to say, look, you know, it has to be. You want people to remember, and you want people to listen to these speeches. So, how do you manage that balance between, you know, informative and 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 meaningful and moving, uh, but also memorable in a certain sense? Because everybody's sort of making the same kinds of speeches as well. So, like when people, you know, thumb the armrest, which is which is the parliament way of applause, that's great. Right, that shows that they really they they heard your message, they responded to it, and they think it's good, you know. And then and then they sort of recognize that. So that was really good. I don't think I got too many rounds of applause. Got a lot of laughs, but I didn't get too many rounds of applause. No, but I but I still um, resonate with that, right? And it's true because you know we sometimes make it so serious in chamber. I mean, I don't think we are talking about um, bringing frivolity or or trivializing right Parliament as an institution. But I I do think it's so important to make sure that what we do in Parliament affects everyone you know, out in the streets, right? So so the whole human-centeredness, you know, approach is really important, whether it's bringing a little bit of lightness, whether it's, you know, you know, being very relatable and not always kind of use big words or, you know, being just sort of, yeah, sort of abstract and intellectual and out there. I think that's really important. The other thing that I will add is that I also figure out after a while that, um, that we're not really talking to the minister's or the MPs when we stand up to speak. Very often, I feel like you're really speaking, first of all, to the media, uh, and then, of course, to, you know, to the people, right, um, to Singaporeans. Uh, and so then that also then allows us to, first and foremost, you're never going to be able to sort of do a speech and then change the bill. <laughs> and that I very quickly learned. Right. So then if that's not the case, then, you know, what are you debating for? What are you speaking up for? And I think that therefore it allows me, you know, to expand, 
I guess um, you know the the messaging um, to reach out to beyond the chamber. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's continue the conversation with my guests. Well, you've raised you know several memorable moments, but if you had to single out one most memorable moment for you during your time as NMP, what would that be? For me, it wasn't so much a moment, but it was more a theme that I sort of decided I wanted to focus on throughout as long as I could on the, ter- the term of my of my time in the house, which was pertaining to sports. I think in and around the time, 2012, 2011, 2012, there was a bit of a push to view sports as more community-driven. So they wanted to see more activities at a grassroots level encourage more people to come together to build a sense of community through sporting or physical activities. And of course, all the the positive benefits of health and wellness and things like that. And as a, as a former competitive uh, athlete, I felt that if the conversation shifted too much into this community aspect of sports, we would lose a very important part of the sports focus, which is on high performance. And if we lose that, then you need to bear in mind that you know people might enjoy aqua aerobics, they might enjoy tai chi and coming together and all that. But if Team Singapore doesn't do well at sports at the international or regional level, very quickly, there might be discussions about support and funding and or, or lack thereof. Uh, there might be discussions about shifting emphasis away from, from sports to other aspects as well. So I told myself, you need to, you know, you were, you were a former uh, competitive athlete. You need to champion that. You need to remind people that it's an entire ecosystem. And at the pointy end, you have your, your, your elite athletes. Um, and, and then uh, all the way down, you down, come down to grassroots sports and then every, so everything in between school sports and, and, and junior teams and things like that and they all have to sort of work together and if we shift too much the focus and of course from a from a government perspective i can see that you know doing grassroots sports and 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 community sports you reach a large number of people and you spread the benefits of sports and sporting activities but that cannot be the be all and end all there is also the component about you know elite top level athletes and support should be given in, in in all the different ways and you know, not not that that made a. I don't believe that that made a, a difference in and of itself. But we have seen our high level athletes really performing and delivering. You know, in the past few years, and that inspires, uplifts the country. And then you have the, the nice pipeline of people coming into sports as well. So it has to play a similar role together with the community side of things. So to me, that was my when I went in. That was a very clear agenda that I wanted to champion. So I made a, quite a few speeches on that. No, nobody attacked me for that. Thankfully, I didn't have to go through that experience. Uh, but I think it reminded policymakers that okay, you know, def- definitely, we it's not one or the other. We should do both. And tell yourself, yeah, I think quite similar to Nicholas. Although my way of looking at it is, it's maybe a bit broader. I mean, it's it's clear that mental health was, you know, my single focus, or at least a primary focus. And then I actually spoke up on mental health with just you know, every bill when I can. And you'd be surprised how many actually bills you can speak about mental health. Uh, and that, I think, has given me, you know, a lot of um, fulfillment and feeling really, you know, rewarding in terms of the experience. Uh, but also the other th- the other two M's. So I always call it the three M's, right, that I bring to Parliament. So mental health is one. The other, obviously, would be the marginalised communities. And I think, and, and Mother Earth would be the last one, the green issues. 
And in terms of marginalized community, I think that's, there is a moment that is very memorable for me. And that would be in COVID because I was part of the, obviously, the pandemic parliament when it when it just happened, debating on the four budgets, right, um, within the space of two months. And one of the you know biggest areas and the most harrowing uh, development was with the migrant workers in the dormitories. And, and I think just I was on the one hand on the ground being involved with this really almost becoming a large humanitarian effort, trying to sort of, you know, organize and, and redirect um, food and, and masks and sanitizers to the different dormitories. And on the other hand, sort of in parliament, pushing and making sure we're actually quickly and, you know, doing what needs to be done and, and coming, you know, up to some testy exchanges as well with the ministers. So, yeah, that I think would be, a, would be what I would name a memorable moment. I mean, it is a pandemic of a, of a generation, right? It's so unprecedented. And Anthea, you also mentioned earlier about some of the changes to the NMP schemes um, over the years, you know, lengthening the terms, increasing the number of NMPs, introducing more functional groups, making the scheme permanent. If there was anything you could change about the scheme today, what would it be? I think immediately Nicholas raised that earlier and actually that came out so much across the different NMP contributors in the book, which is the the resources, um, the secretarial and legislative resources, right? I think the, the salary being different from the elected MPs, obviously, right? Because the, the work uh, with the constituency and all that, um, we're not doing that. But but we do the same, we're expected to bring the same value in parliament for legislative work. So I think there should be parity in terms of the secretarial and legislative resources that should be given to NMPs. Immediately, I also think it's, we should be looking at making you know, the scheme, uh, the selection process um, more transparent. If we want to strengthen the institution, one way is to you know, make the selection process of the final NMP is more transparent and, and more, yeah, I mean, more robust as well, right? So that people are not questioning why these NMPs are selected out of the 61, as you said. Why, why these 9 out of 61? Why 9 out of 48, which was my cohort? Uh, we had 48. I also personally feel, and I want to go back to Nicholas's point, that the NMP scheme has a place to, you know, focus on some of the issues that the, the other uh, MPs in the House uh, may not want to come into. So I feel like the functional groups, we need to relook at it. The business and, and labor functional groups are very well represented, right, by uh, elected MPs. And I would say the issues are also well represented, even by opposition MPs, right? Because, I mean, it is, it is just part and parcel of who we are, right? Everyone would be affected by issues in the business and when it comes to, you know, business and, and labor. But so I think, you know, having them also represented by NMP seemed a bit more of an overreach and, and overrepresentation of these two uh, communities. So I feel like maybe we can actually retire that and and then you know introduce you know what Nicholas was talking about sports environment having maybe an environment MP even having an NMP sorry um even having an MP that that supports um the disability sector it is a large number of people within the dis disability community uh, and we've always had the lights of you know not always but you know in recent years we've had Yong Yong and Pinsu um, but I think, you know, there's, there's definitely room to institutionalize some of this, 
uh, and then piece by retiring some of the others that are already well represented. Any final thoughts on what Anthea said, Nicholas? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously support would be great, but I also wanted to shout out to the, the Parliament sec- Secretariat mm-hmm. staff. They the are they are so nice and they are so helpful and they never treat us as asking stupid questions. And all the requests that we put in, they really, really work hard. So I, I do miss the, the Parliament team, uh, Secretariat team. But yeah, for myself, you know, building on, on Anthea's points, I, I do think that there are certain sectors, obviously I'm biased, but I think sport should, should always be represented because... Uh, it's something that touches everyone in some way, shape or form, but it's not necessarily understood by everyone in terms of the ecosystem requirements and, and how to grow and, and build a sports sector. Uh, you know, Singapore has been trying for many years and you can see it's quite a hard task. It's taken us a long time to get anywhere to to sort of being a, a true sporting nation. But I I do recognise that there will always be be a little bit of debate as to which functional group should be enshrined within it. I think sports should be arts community will say that arts should be in there. Uh, interestingly, we in, in my term, we actually had an environment-focused environment, environment NMP uh, who really pushed uh, the sustainability and environmental agenda at a time when it wasn't as hot as it is, you know, pardon the pun, uh, today, you know, with climate change and stuff like that. So it, it is interesting, but, you know, if we start to fix it, then as much as I would want to fix sport, I know that there are other groups that want to have a fixed slot as well, then uh, nine is really not very much so how do we decide which groups have a permanence in that sense? And and it changes over time, right? There will be a time when, you know, Lord knows however many years that the issues would have changed and maybe sport doesn't have to be represented because it's already very well represented throughout society. Uh, you might have other issues and you know, environment might have to be enshrined because we're dealing with a multi-generational problem here. So I think that that's the tricky part. Uh, you know, I would still push for, for my own sector, but at the same time, everybody else would. And I think recognizing that uh, is also part of the intricacies and challenges of managing this scheme well uh, today and, and in the future. I think what Nicholas said is such a nice um, sort of coming back to the book, right? To then therefore say that it's important that we also do review of this system, right? Of this scheme, because as the society evolves, the needs change, then, you know, we can't be still doing the same thing that we did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And and same with the functional groups, same with the way we approach the NNP um, scheme. So I hope also that the book, given the diverse views that each of the contributors have put in, would also invite us, right, to start conversations about, yeah, what, what more can we do? What do we need to change with not just the NMP scheme, but also, you know, in the parliamentary system? And on that very pertinent point about keeping up with the times, thank you, Anthea, for coming on our show. Thank you. And Nicholas, it was great to have you on too. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. And that's a wrap for In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.